standing for the reading of God's Word from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 as we read verses 10 through 12. The other day, my smallest uh, daughter said to me, Dad, you started only preaching one verse at a time. You used to do like 20 verses at a time. So here you go, Penny, three verses today. (laughs) Hear now the Word of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray and ask him to bless it. Heavenly Father, would you use your word today, together by the working of your spirit, to shape us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ, who in this world was persecuted, and in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I remember very clearly the first time I felt persecuted as a Christian. Now, this is embarrassing to say, because I am an American. And the way that Americans experience persecution is very different than the way Christians experience persecution in other parts of the world. I do not know what it is like to live as a Christian in China or in Pakistan or what it's like this morning to be in Afghanistan and wondering whether your worship service is going to be intruded in upon. I don't know what that's like. I have no experience of that. And so uh, you may be tempted to laugh at what I'm about to say, but I will tell you anyway, this was the first time I remember feeling persecuted as a teenager. Uh, I remember uh, as a teenager, I was a very new Christian. I was very enthusiastic about sharing Jesus with my classmates. And I remember I was in front of a a group of of students, and especially I think they were the football players. And the the football players in my school, you ran past them because... Uh, If you were me, you ran past them because they would realize you're carrying Lord of the Rings and and they'd get you, you know. (laughs) Uh, But Clint was the the quarterback of our high school football team. And I remember very clearly uh, that we had hung up signs around the school. Hey, we're having a Bible study. And, And I remember as I was walking by, Clint said, nobody wants to come to your stupid Bible study. That's your daddy's religion. And all the, you just would think that he had just told the funniest joke anyone had ever heard. Just the guys around him just roaring with laughter. They thought it was so funny. And at the time, I sort of like, ha, 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 you know, and I, I moved on. And what they did not know was I was very hurt. Uh, I was very hurt by being rejected by these guys, by being mocked by these guys. I was a high school student, and high schoolers care what everybody thinks about them. And it made me feel six inches tall at the time. Um, I felt reviled, and um, if you see Jesus' words here about rejoicing and being glad, well, I wasn't very glad, and I did not rejoice. (laughs) 
I think I was supposed to rejoice, but I, I didn't feel any degree of rejoicing. Um, I, I rejoice in retrospect, but, but I look back and I think that, the, that he saw something in me that he didn't like. And, and it wasn't that I wasn't nice. I was like super nice. Uh, I was a bad brother. I treated my siblings horribly, but I was a good citizen. And then when I became a Christian, I was even nicer uh, than I was before. So it wasn't that, oh, Adam was just really mean to this guy and he really had it coming to him. No, I, I, it was not the case. Um, Maybe you've had relationships, though, where your people rejected you. They said they didn't want to have a relationship with you because of things Christians believe. Uh, you ever read, like, Ask Amy or Ask Abigail or ask, you know, all these advice columns? You might think I'm weird, but I read them all. Like, just I read them all because I want to see the weird stuff people are upset about. And it is crazy the numbers of things people are writing to these ladies about going, I'm ready to break off this relationship because she didn't write me a thank you card. And, and every single time, she's talking them down from the ledge. You don't have to break off a relationship over this, you know? And, you know, lately, anyway, people are just ready to break it off over anything. And sometimes you'll see people write in and they'll say, my cousin is a Christian and she believes Christian things. And so because of that, I'm thinking of, of cutting her off from my family and never letting my kids see them and things like this. I'm, it's kind of bonkers, the amount of times this comes into people's minds. I should just stop being around this person because they're a Christian. Um, these are old problems. These are not new problems. This is not a 21st century problem. Christians have always faced pressure. Often it is intense. Oftentimes it is violent, but they have always pres uh, faced pressure to change their beliefs, abandon the teachings of scripture, find an easier path that causes less friction with society. This is a problem that goes all the way back to the early church. How do we deal with what Jesus says here today? Jesus says, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness sake. How can that possibly be? What is blessed about being hated? What is blessed about being mocked by people? What is blessed? Why would it be blessed for us to experience the sorts of things Jesus is telling us are coming our way? And the answer actually shows the very upside-down priorities of God's people versus the priorities of the world around us. And so let's, let's get into this question this morning. Saints of God, according to Jesus, live as those who are three things. Those who are righteous, those who are reviled, and those who are rejoicing. And in no way are those three things contradictions. So let's look at exactly what's being said here by Jesus. First thing I want you to see, Christians live as those who are righteous. What does he say again in verse 10? He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think we read this and we jump to the persecution part. Right? We go, ah, persecution, persecution. Sometimes Christians are eager to prove that we're being persecuted. Sometimes we're eager to make sure that we can do something to generate persecution. Um, we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, but generally, we leave out the, the real part that Jesus is beginning with, the seed that all of this grows out of, which is really this idea of righteousness. That's where all of this trouble comes from to begin with. It's the righteousness of the Christian that is really assumed by Jesus to be the problem. 
And we, we already talked a few weeks back about righteousness in our study, right? The Christian is someone who hungers and thirsts for what? For righteousness. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's what a Christian is like. He, he, he wants, uh, in other words, to be like Jesus. That is something we yearn for. And so in that yearning, when we talk about righteousness... Let's be clear what we're talking about. Righteousness is not the same thing as kindness or gentleness necessarily, right? Simply being a good person or being a good neighbor is not what Jesus is concerned will get us persecuted. Now, that doesn't mean we're not nice. It doesn't mean we're not good neighbors, but it's not enough, right? Because the world loves nice people. The world loves kind people. The the world loves courteous people, um, people who are good neighbors, I moved to the Pacific Northwest. I've never lived in a place where people were better neighbors, were nicer, and kinder to each other. Now, your experiences might be different. I might just be in a good neighborhood. But generally speaking, I go to uh, the grocery store. People care about me. They want to know about my life. Um, one of the first places we went to was Dutch Brothers when we got here. And I thought, they're so friendly. This is almost unpleasant. <laughs> Like, I don't know how I feel about the Pacific Northwest. And then I realized that's a Dutch Brothers thing. They make them do that, so. <laughs> this can be too much, you know. Uh, generally, the, peop- the world loves nice people. Um, those things are not going to endure- induce persecution. Um, Jesus is not saying, blessed are those who are kind. Specifically, Jesus says there is a character trait that the Christian bears that the rest of the world doesn't bear, that's going to result in persecution. And that that is the key word here, righteousness. Specifically, when he says righteousness, what is he doing? He's talking about Christ-likeness. He's talking about being like Jesus. This is a righteousness that is a part of our lives. Why? Because we are the people of God in Christ. Christians are called to live out ordinary Righteous lives that reject, reflect Jesus, both in our beliefs and in our practices. And that is plenty enough to catch the ire of unbelievers. In the early church, you have Christians. They were determined. They were determined simply to go and live among people as another neighbor. They lived ordinary lives. They didn't, they didn't live in a way that was extraordinary or any, even that was noticeable. One of the early documents of the early church uh, is a a book called The Epistle of Diognetus. It's actually a great book to read. Look it up online and read it if you could spell Diognetus. I dare you to try. But here's the thing that the the author was writing. He was arguing um, for Christianity in this book. And he argued this. He said the Christians are very ordinary people. We don't, well, listen to what he says. He says, for Christians are no different from other people in terms of their country, language, or customs. Nowhere do they inhabit cities of their own, use a strange dialect, or live life out of the ordinary. You see this? Paul Paul says something similar in Galatians 3.28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, Paul's point is, among other things, Christians don't live in a particular place. We don't look a particular way or belong to any one ethnic group, right? Christians are spread throughout society, and we live ordinary lives. 
And in the second century, though, there's this long list of things that did make Christians stand out. So we didn't speak weird languages. We didn't live in separated communities, but there were things that made us stand out. So Christians refused to participate in things that at times made them seem like enemies of the state, enemies of the society. Part of the problem was that to many, Christians looked like Jews. So if you looked at a Christian church and you saw Christians gathering, it would actually look like a meaning of a synagogue. There's this, there's this dual problem for Christians at the time, right? On the one hand, there were Greeks who hated Jews, so they persecuted Christians because they didn't like Jews. And on the other hand, you had Jews who hated Christians and so persecuted them. And so you, they basically had trouble coming from every direction. They were shot by both sides. And then you could understand what would be so troublesome to Jewish people about Christians, right? You see this in the book of Acts. Paul, as a young man before Christ, he approves of the persecution of Christians uh, because he hears Stephen give a sermon where he says, among many other things, that the temple isn't the center of Israel anymore. Jesus is. And then by the second century, you have Jewish leaders who are so upset with Christians that they actually had a curse they would read in their synagogues. So if this were a synagogue, you'd have it be a Saturday morning and the um, the, the Jews would all gather in the synagogue, and by the second century, this is what they would do. They would get up and read this. Let Christians and heretics perish in a moment. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. They would lead off their services with that. We use the apostolic greeting. <laughs> <laughs> There's, let Christians be blotted out of the book of the living. And they would read that during their worship services in the synagogue. You have a Christian apologist, Justin Martyr, around this time. He's writing, and one of the things he writes is he, he accuses the Christians of this, cursing in your synagogues those that believe on Christ. So when you combine this historical document of this curse that would be read in the synagogues, then you have Justin Martyr saying, you're cursing us in your synagogues. There seems to be this corroboration that by the second century, within a hundred years of the resurrection, um, Christians believed that Jesus was coming, and the early Christians were experiencing persecution for righteousness' sake. They're trusting in Jesus, and they're being cursed for it in public. That's from the Jewish side. Then you've got all this trouble from the Gentile side. So at, at first, the Romans, they look at, they look at Christians, they look at Christianity, they basically said, this is basically Judaism. Right? You have this moment in, in Acts chapter 18, 15, you've got the proconsul Gallio, and Gallio, they bring these problems before Gallio, and Gallio says, I'm not even going to deal with this. He says, this dispute is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law. See to it yourselves. Right? So he thinks this is an inter-Jewish uh, scuffle that's happening, and he doesn't want to deal with it. This is a Jewish problem. And so that's, that's what the Romans saw. They see all these Jewish squabbles, and they don't want to have anything to do with it. Now, eventually, though, more Gentiles come into the church, the church starts to look less Jewish. The church starts to look more Gentile. You have people with Gentile names worshiping Jesus in a visible way. You have church leaders. We know that there were deacons in the church with Gentile names. Uh, and eventually, the second century becomes this time where the church starts to be less and less seen as a Jewish religion and more and more as its own thing, as a Gentile religion. And this is when the church begins to attract the attention of Gentile politicians, Gentile leaders. Um, here's where we begin to talk about what it means to live righteous lives in an oppositional culture 
where we really have little cultural power. Uh, I do not remember who asked the question, but when I was candidating here, uh, the search committee, I think at one point, asked me, what do you see as the future of Christianity? And, and I said, I think Christians are going to increasingly need to look at the second century church as their inspiration for how to live. Because in the second century, Christians do not occupy important cultural places. We don't occupy places of political power. People are not looking at Christians as the people who are the cool people in society. Instead, they're just faithfully worshiping. They're faithfully meeting. They're doing what God calls them to do. And they're doing it without any sort of cultural cachet or any sort of credibility at all. Instead, they're just preaching the scripture and they're just gathering together. And sometimes they're getting persecuted and they just keep meeting. That's the second century church. And I think that is actually our model for how we need to think about the next hundred years of our own churches. Um, but the thing that makes them stand out is this reality that they, they did a few things. There are a few things that Christians did that actually we need to do as well that make us stand out, that help define what it means to be persecuted for righteousness sake. The first thing that made Christians stand out was they sang hymns to Jesus as God. Um, sometimes we think that our political positions are the things that should make us stand out the most. And we can be very tempted to believe that's actually where the real key is. No. The thing that makes us stand out is the same thing that made the early Christians stand out. They worshipped Jesus as God. They worshipped a man and said, he is God. That got them in trouble. You could, you could remove all the other stuff, and they could have the same views as everyone else in society. This is enough to get you in trouble. Um, this is a positive action on the part of the church. It made them stand out from the rest of the world. Now, my plan isn't to delve deeply into this, because I think we understand this. But the worship of Jesus was truly the defining characteristic that endured, that ensured that the church would never be able to be part of the world. As long as we're worshiping Jesus, we cannot be one of them. The second thing that Christians would do is the church is, the church is composed of people from all these types and, and ethnicities and classes in Roman society. This is a huge thing. You didn't have groups in Roman society where the lower class and the upper crust hung out in the same place. Um, this is something that, you know, a Roman society is very hierarchical. This seemed like a dangerous idea to have people from the lower classes and the upper classes mingling together, spending time together, even sharing their resources with each other. Um, one of the ways that you actually saw the hierarchies of Roman society being damaged by the church is actually in the way that women were treated. So the fact that Christian actually showed respect to women and valued them that, that sounds like a very low bar in the 21st century. <laughs> Value women and love women and treat them with respect. Do they just, the fact that even you would need to say it sounds scandalous. Of course you do those things. But it wasn't like that in Roman society. Roman society treated women like trash. And when the Christian church came along, the Christian church did not do that. Instead, what it did was it gave women opportunities to serve others. One of the big problems in Roman societies is uh, female infanticide. If somebody has a, fa a baby girl, they say, I need an heir to this family. I need a man. And so they would take the little girl and they would take her out into the forest and they would leave her and expose her until animals came and took her or until she died from natural causes. 
They would expose infants. This is a regular thing in Roman society. And they would explicitly do this to little girls. Little girls disproportionately would be aborted, in other words, uh, whereas boys would be saved. And so what what did the Christians do? The Christians said, you can't do that. They stood up for these little baby girls and they opposed abortion. Uh, They opposed, now, of course, we think of abortion today as very different than it would have been back then. It would have been more brutal uh, than it is, well, it's still brutal, but less medical. Um, I won't go any further than that. Um, Husbands would mistreat their wives. They would fight for, uh, instead, what happened? Christians said, we need to have healthy marriages. Christians resisted divorce, and they condemned prostitution. They opposed the idea of child brides, which was something that happened regularly in Roman society. These are all very Christ-like things that were not very pragmatic if your desire is to be liked by the surrounding culture. All of these things the culture liked. There's no, there's no gain. There's nothing to gain from the culture by taking these stances, and they did, and they all ended up leading to Christian troubles, right? It made Christians stand out that they valued women and that the people in the the church from these lower classes mingled with people from the higher classes. Higher classes thought that it was trouble because they said, look, we are upsetting the balance of society by doing this. And in a sense, that may may very well be true, but it wasn't the essence of the church, but it was what they did. Third, the church was known for their sexual integrity, you see, uh, again, the epistle of Diognetus. What does he say? He says, Christians share their meals, but not their sexual partners. This would have been very baffling to the Romans. That's why he mentions it. <laughs> For Romans, this is not the way to live. Uh, there's, a, there's a Roman writer named Demosthenes who explained exactly the sort of attitude Romans had toward their wives. He said, we keep mistresses for our enjoyment, concubines to serve our person each day, But we have wives for the bearing of legitimate offspring and to be faithful guardians of the household. So you get this, you have have women, and all of them serve a different function. That's the way they treated them. The way we talk about vehicles or the way we talk about uh, household goods. That's how they talked about their wives. Um, You have the emperor Hadrian complaining about Christians. He said, Christians do not commit adultery nor fornication, and their men keep themselves from every unlawful union. He notes that about Christians because it's not true of the Romans. They're good Christians. These are things that make make the Christians stand out. And then you go into the writings of the early church. You have Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. He makes a laundry list of former sins that Christians used to participate in, that they used to define themselves by. And after he gives the long list of sins, he says, But you were washed, you were sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians were known for putting sexual sin in the rearview mirror. They, they left those things behind with their old lives, and they strained forward toward what was ahead. That'll make you stand out in a culture like that. Fourth, I'll just mention briefly that Christians were known for refusing to practice infanticide or abortion. I mentioned this already, but this was not unusual for the Romans to put their female children to death because they want a male heir instead. And here's what Christians would do. Not only did they negatively say, we're not going to do that, but positively they would also rescue children who were left out to be exposed to the elements. And you can imagine how the Romans would spin this, right? The Romans would say, the Christians are kidnappers. They steal our children. 
So there's always a way to spin something. Um, the important thing is we're called to righteousness. We're called to Christ-likeness. That's what the church did, and they were reviled for it. You can see it right there. Because this is the second point, actually. Jesus tells us that Christians are those who are reviled. Um, here's what happens. When people live righteous lives where we worship and emulate Jesus, that will make people angry. Now, being kind and being a good neighbor and mowing your lawn and paying your taxes, those things don't get you persecuted. I mentioned that already. But refusing to go along with the sexual mores of the day certainly will. I think that's because of, of this. When someone is a good neighbor, when someone follows the rules, when someone treats people kindly, nobody's threatened by that, right? Because they see something in that that they can attain. They say, I can be a good neighbor. I can be, I can be nice and friendly to people when they walk past my house and I can visit with them from my front porch. I can do that, right? Um, but when someone's Christ-like, when they forgive their enemies... Uh, when they say no to sexual temptation, when they refuse to participate in things that others have no qualms about, that is a threat. Because it's like seeing somebody do something that you will never be able to do and you're having it paraded in front of you and it becomes a threat. This thing that is unreachable for you, it becomes a threat. See, the world likes our good behavior as citizens as long as it doesn't run up against them and as long as it doesn't run up against their priorities. But here's, what ha here's the reality. Christ's likeness is a testimony that righteousness is real and that on their own, the watching world can't have it. Jesus was the nicest, kindest, gentlest person who ever lived. He was the best neighbor anybody could ever want. These things were not enough to protect him. Why not? Because he was the Christ. Because he was Jesus. Because he was so righteous, he was a threat. Why is that? It comes back to, to the spiritual reality that if you're not born again, then you are what Paul calls a, a natural man or a natural woman. And he says that someone like that cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them. In other words, there is an inner disposition away from these things in a natural person. There is a natural antipathy against Jesus because he's the Christ. And if we're in Christ, the world's going to have a spiritual posture of opposition to us. Jesus says it like this in John 15. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Let me be very clear about something. <clears throat> We shouldn't try to invite persecution from others unnecessarily. Um, we shouldn't go looking to die. We shouldn't go looking to be persecuted so that we can feel better about ourselves and say, well, see, now I know that I'm a Christian because I got persecuted. Um, there's a story from church history. It was told during the persecution of Galerius. Galerius was, he was the emperor right before Constantine. 
So if you know of Constantine, you know that Constantine uh, was uh, the, the emperor who made Christianity the official religion of the empire. But before that, you had Galerius, and Galerius brought the last really intense persecution against Christians. And around 300 AD, during the persecution of Galerius, martyrdom became this very sought-after thing. Because people had looked in the previous 50, 70 years, and they'd said, see, look at these brothers and sisters who, uh, the world, of whom the world was not worthy. And they remembered their names, and they spoke of them, and they, and they remembered how they died, and they remembered their bravery. And so in their zeal, they actually became people who wanted to be martyrs. It wasn't just that they allowed themselves to become martyrs when it was necessary, but the problem was people started to seek out martyrdom. They tried to intentionally be killed by the authorities. You have this one governor who was confronted by a group of expectant martyrs, and he began to execute a few of them, but they seemed extremely eager in a way that was unpleasant. And so the rest, of the, the rest of the Christians are lined up and the rest of the Christians are demanding it as well. They're saying, kill us next, kill me next, kill me next. And after a while, the governor just looked at them. And this is a quote. You wretches, if you want to die, you have cliffs to leap from and ropes to hang by. Ask me for that quote later. I'll give it to you. <laughs> so, these, are, these, these are martyrs, I would suggest. They're not what Jesus is talking about. Right? This is suicide by state that they're committing here. Right? They're not being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. We should be careful that we don't intentionally seek out trouble or invite persecution by doing unrighteous things or doing righteous things in unrighteous ways. Jesus does not say we're blessed when we're persecuted for just anything, right? If you're a Christian and you get persecuted for something unrelated to the cause of righteousness, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Um, a Christian doesn't necessarily, being a Christian doesn't necessarily mean we're being persecuted for righteousness sake just because we, we experience some kind of trouble in our lives. Um, Keith, Keith Matheson says it this way. He says, many Christians think this way. The world hates me, therefore I must faithfully be following Jesus. Many Christians think that way. They think, oh, people don't like me. I must be following Jesus. And, and actually, Jesus isn't saying that. That is a fallacy. That's a logical fallacy. It's called affirming the consequent. See, Jesus isn't saying that the world's hatred is always proof that you're faithfully following Jesus. It could be that we're just behaving like jerks and we're facing the sort of trouble that people find when they act like jerks. When Westboro Baptist Church gets beaten up by bikers for picketing a gold star soldier's funeral, they don't get to go home complaining that they've suffered for righteousness sake. They were being jerks. Um, we need to be clear what persecution means and what it doesn't mean. I, I think it's important that you understand we are blessed when we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, not when we're persecuted for behaving like boars. We are not blessed when we behave like monsters and then get what's coming to us. So what is Jesus saying? then? Jesus is saying this, if you faithfully follow me, then the world will hate you. Right? That's different. Right? If you faithfully follow Jesus, the world will hate you. Paul says it like this. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
Jesus is not promising that suffering for bad choices or reckless living will lead to our being blessed, right? If there's a video circulating out there of you spitting on the greeter at Costco because they ask you to wear a mask, you don't get to go, oh, I'm being persecuted for righteousness sake. We don't get to do that. Jesus isn't talking about that. It is the persecution of righteousness by which we're called blessed. Jesus is, is also not saying blessed are those who live foolishly, right? There are people out there, Christians even, who do not carry their faith well. They go out, they look for trouble, they needlessly make problems for themselves in the church. They want to force confrontations where there was no prior conflict. Such Christians are not being, we talked about this last week, peacemakers, right? Jesus calls them that. Instead, they're, they're troublemakers who maybe happen to be Christians, we need to distinguish the persecution somebody faces in that situation from the persecution of somebody who's living like Jesus. Um, people who carry their faith poorly or who end up in trouble because they chose to make fights or make trouble, they have no assurance that the suffering they're experiencing is for righteousness sake, like Jesus says here. Um, here's one problem, though, for many people, even churches, there's this incredible desire to be approved of by the world, right? There's some people go out looking for trouble, but there's the flip side of it, which is there are Christians and there are churches that just want to be loved by the world. If only the world would love us. They think, maybe we can have our cake and eat it too. You know? And so you have churches, they try to thread the needle where they say, I can believe what the Bible says, and I can somehow position myself or position my church in such a way that the world will still approve of us. Right? We'll just assume the Bible's doctrines. We'll assume... The orthodox teachings. We won't say controversial things. We won't say things that might draw the ire of the watching world. In fact, we can do the things the world likes, and we can assume Christian doctrine just in the meantime. We can do this. You see this happening a lot. This is a scourge on Christendom at the moment. It's a problem on two levels. One is practical. Um, here's the practical reality. What is assumed but not taught is eventually forgotten. <clears throat> Let's make it, let's put it on t-shirts, let's sell them for 10 bucks. What's assumed but not taught is eventually forgot. There are many churches out there, and, and we'll talk more about this next week, um, but there are many churches out there where the decision has been made not to emphasize anything that's controversial. So the church is orthodox in its beliefs, their leadership maybe even affirms, let's go with the most orthodox document there is, the Westminster Standards. Uh, they, they, maybe they assume the Westminster standards, but here's what happens. Over time, they start to wonder why this church has people who think basic Christian doctrines aren't important. Well, we haven't been teaching it for a long time. Why does everybody here think that Christianity is really not important to know the truths of anymore? They wonder why are our children going off to college and they're coming back more worldly, and they tend to think the church isn't very important. Might it, might it be that being in an environment where the truth wasn't taught, but it was only assumed, eventually created a church where there was no truth left to assume anymore? We have to be on the front lines of truth, not in a reacting posture. Uh, let us set forth what is true and teach it before it becomes an endangered species. Let's not be defensive and say, oh no, now everybody here doesn't understand Christian doctrine. We better fix that. Well, actually, we should have been eating it like a regular meal all the time. So let's hold out truth as a good thing now before it's being questioned. 
before it's being called into question. Let's be clear with the Bible is that, that the Bible is always good in all its ways, not only when a theological crisis strikes. So let's intentionally make good theology part of our bread and butter, our meat and potatoes, and how we live now. We don't just assume it. We have to assume that if it isn't being taught, it is being forgot. If it's not being taught, then it's being neglected. That, that's one problem with this desire to be liked by, by the world, right? We, we assume the truth instead of teaching the truth. The other problem is when we do that, we're reaching for something Jesus says we should never have. What does he say in Luke 6, 26? He says, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. If there's anybody's company you want to be in, it's the prophets. And if there's anybody whose company you don't want to be in, it's the false prophets. Jesus pronounces a woe upon us when we set aside being Christ-like so that we can be applauded. You don't want to draw your MO from the, the false prophets, by the way. Um, Jesus says that is a bad thing. We don't do that. If we follow Jesus, he tells us that we should expect to be reviled. So two points. We're re rejoicing, or we're reviled, and we're righteous. But now what does he say? We have our third point here. Our natural reaction to being reviled, our natural reaction to being hated by others is what? What do we do when other people hate us? We sort of draw into ourselves. Or maybe I'm just speaking for myself here. We draw into ourselves. We become angry. We become embittered. We become frustrated. We think of how unfair it is that we're being treated this way. But then Jesus says we ought to have a very different reaction to that. So don't, don't go with your natural reaction. Don't go with your natural reaction. He says, third, Christians should be rejoicing. Rejoicing. Look what he says in verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He uses these two verbs here. He's got this word rejoice. The, the Greek word is kairete. It means to, to hail. Um, it means you should be in this state of happiness and well-being. Now, I'm I want to elaborate. The Bible's just full of joyful, happy ways that this word gets used. Uh, Jesus uses this word for somebody's inner disposition that doesn't naturally bear any connection with the pain we're suffering, right? So in a, in an, in an, it's an attitude that does not seem well suited to somebody who's being persecuted. You wouldn't naturally go through the text and think that you're going to see people being treated badly and rejoicing, and yet that's exactly what happens. And that's exactly what Jesus says for Christians. Jesus says, if you experience persecution for righteousness' sake, rejoice. Kairete, rejoice. And then he has another verb that he uses here. He says, be glad. The word is agaliao. And that's the Greek word for exulting. That's the Greek word for when you're so happy, it just comes out. So he's this is an elated person. This is somebody who is really filled with happiness. And Jesus says that we should not be depressed or surprised by persecution. One of the things you see in the book of Acts is that the, the disciples get arrested, they get beaten, and it says that they left rejoicing. They, they're rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for righteousness' sake. Um, Jesus is saying that we should not be depressed or surprised by persecution. When we hear about persecution, especially when it's other Christians, they should get our sympathy. They should get our love. 
They should get our prayers, right? Our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan should be on our minds this week. Um, they, they should be. But we should also be praying that God would fulfill these words for them as they suffer and as they are persecuted. That they would be glad. That they would rejoice in spite of everything inside of us that screams, why would you rejoice at that? Um, and, and Jesus is talking about the inner disposition of the person, right? He's not just saying externally, visibly, when you're performing for everybody, say that you're great. But on the inside, secretly, you're dying. He actually says, be glad. In other words, he's talking about your inner disposition. You shouldn't just formally say, uh, Jesus says that I am supposed to rejoice when persecution happens. So I am rejoicing now. This is my rejoicing. This is how I rejoice. I say that I'm rejoicing. Jesus says, no, your inner disposition should be overflowing. You should be exulting that this could happen to you. Instead of saying, why has this happened to me? Say, why is this happening to me? Very different way of thinking about these things. So it's not just on the outside, it's on the inside. He's saying, glow from the inside out with this thought that the world would look at you and they would see Jesus and they would treat you the way that they treated Jesus. What an honor. That is what Jesus is saying. He's not just saying, talk a big talk. He's saying, on the inside, be the sort of person who actually rejoices because you're blessed, because your treasure's not here. It's in heaven. Later, we'll talk about rewards in heaven and why it is that Jesus always holds these rewards out to us as our motivation. We'll, we'll get to that later. Not today, though. A couple of reasons God gives us to rejoice in persecution. I'll be very brief. One reason is that persecution can be, it can be a proof that we belong to heaven and not to this world. Uh, in a sense, persecution can be an evidence that we're not citizens of this world, so, so much as citizens of heaven. What does Jesus say? He says, we should be glad for your reward is in heaven. Remember that word for. What's for there for? Because there's an argument there. He says, your reward is in heaven, therefore rejoice. Your reward's not on this earth. That's not what you live for. Therefore, rejoice. That's why he's making an argument. Persecution indicates that you belong to another place and you have a reward that is not here. You are being persecuted like a stranger and a foreigner because you are a stranger and a foreigner in this place. You're being treated like that because you are. The old hymn used to say, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. By the way, I can't find that in any hymnals, but I love the song. So. Another reason persecution be a, can be a cause of rejoicing is that what does it do? It looses us from clinging to this world. My suspicion is, our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who are worshiping today do not feel secure because their mortgage is paid or because they have life insurance uh, or because they have money and savings. I suspect they do not feel more secure because they have any of those things. They are not clinging to this world. They can't, right? You, you lose things that you naturally cling to, the sort of things that you and I perhaps tell ourselves, I cling to Jesus, and in reality, we feel secure for a lot of other reasons. Imagine those, those crutches get pulled out from underneath of us, and suddenly we find out where we really stand and what it is we really stand upon. 
Persecution does that, right? It looses us from the world. Suddenly we can't cling to this stuff. Suddenly we can't lean on this stuff. We have our eyes on heaven as Christians. We have our eyes on a a better country. Hebrews 11, look there and you see this constant refrain that these saints who lived before us didn't have their eyes on earth. They had their eyes on heaven. Persecution and suffering. What does it do? It draws our eyes upward. It draws our eyes to the heavenly city that, that Hebrews told us Abraham was looking forward to. It said Abraham looked forward to a heavenly city. His eyes were higher. Listen to Hebrews. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What is your reaction when you hear about Christians killed around the world? Yeah, I hear about how the Taliban has already treated our brothers and sisters in Christ. I hear about the return of ISIS and their threats to once again crucify Christians, people who bear the name of Jesus how it treats women and children. And to be honest, I get mad if I'm honest. I get mad. I get get angry. And I'm not saying it's wrong to be mad or angry, uh, mad to be uh, wrong to be angry or to have righteous anger. But here's the question I have for you. Do you lift your eyes higher? Do you have your eyes set on heaven as well, where you yearn for our brothers and sisters there and what they're experiencing to also have their eyes on the same kingdom you're setting your eyes on too. How often do we consider this, that persecution is a sign of deep, deep spiritual darkness? Not, a, not on our part, but on the, on the persecutor's part. Perhaps there should be a second kind of response when persecution happens, because instead of only righteous anger, isn't it also the case that maybe we should react with pity for the ones who are doing the persecution? Um, I have to quote Martin Lloyd-Jones, contractually obligated. Listen to what Lloyd-Jones says. He says, persecution is something that the Christian should always regret. It should be to him a source of great grief that men and women, because of sin and because they are so dominated by Satan, should behave in such an inhuman and devilish manner. The Christian is, in a sense, one who must feel his heart breaking at the effect of sin in others that makes them do this. So he never rejoices in the fact of persecution as such. Doesn't it change our posture when we think that the real, true, ultimate victim of persecution is actually the persecutor? That he has to live with what he's done. The Apostle Paul spends the rest of his life and ministry with faces before him that he persecuted. That he treated the way that he did. That he was in a place of such incredible spiritual darkness that he would actually kill a man because the name of Jesus is on his lips. 
Jesus saw his own persecutors this way. Maybe you think, Adam, you're going soft. Jesus saw his own persecutors this way. What does Jesus do? He is murdered, and in the process of being murdered, he says, Forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. He pitied his own murderers. Are you Christ-like enough when you think of the persecutors of the church that you would pray the same? Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You may be angry, but do you have pity? You may be filled with righteous fury, but do you have love? All of these things conspire to show us what it is to be truly Christ-like. Let's ask the Lord to shape us to be more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, whether we are suffering persecution ourselves or whether it is your people in other places who are being persecuted, would you bless your church both with a willingness to suffer for your name as well as a commitment to live righteous lives that are quiet, godly, and dignified in every way. Help us to bear your name with joy, no matter what may result from that identification we have with you. Give us a firm interest in Christ so that even if persecution should arise against us, we would meet that persecution with gladness and with joy. Set our eyes on you, set our eyes on your heavenly throne and upon the future joy that is great, higher, and more glorious than anything this world can offer. Would you do these things for us, O oh Lord our God? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.